The information contained in this episode is for informational purposes only. No material is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We need a Well, you asked for it, you got it, you've got a revolution. We've had this health revolution underway here for a couple of years now. It's very exciting. You're listening to the Liberty Hour on Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHDTV and a couple other platforms. So glad you can join us. This hour of Informed Life Radio is brought to you by the great folks at Informed Choice Washington. We get free speech on the airways right in Washington State, AM radio, and then of course going out to the world with all these uh, streaming platforms. We could not do this without you, without the listeners who go to the website, sign up and give a little something every month to uh, help us keep free speech on the air. You know, I was just talking uh, backstage with a couple of folks that can be pulling on here. And I'm really excited about educating the public, bringing you this information we're going to be so strong and so empowered that no matter what they want to try to make us fearful of in the future, it's not going to happen because we are all going to move forward, understanding really how to achieve health, not fearing disease, understanding um, that these brilliant immune systems that we have been given by God can be supported. And uh, we just need to do a little homework and um, and we're all good. I'm going to bring on Bob Reynolds, who's my co-host again this Hi. hour. Welcome, Bob. Hi, Bernadette. Happy Friday. Hey. Happy Friday. Loved the first hour, the health hour. If um, people are just joining us, um, I encourage you to go back and, and watch the first hour covering glutathione, that amazing tripeptide-made uh, master antioxidant that really is the key to all avenues of health. It's it's what we're meant to have on board. If we eat right, keep stress at bay, be careful of those, those drugs like acetaminophen that undermine it. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm fired up because and, of that hour. And even... Sorry, a bit of a delay. Yeah. Um, you know, stressful and more yeah, we, we, uh, nutrified since that hour we spent. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because I feel like so much, I think when we're most afraid is when we feel powerless, don't we? And that's when we may mm. listen to the influence of others that maybe without taking the time to think critically, because fear, it like shuts off the frontal lobe a little bit. And we really have to be careful um, to gather enough information and be informed enough that we can think critically critically at times when others are trying to make us fearful, right? And, you know, one of the best things you do to get educated is to find really good classes to take. And that can be expensive and that can be difficult to do unless you know about IPAC and you know about Dr. James Lyons Weiler, who's joining us today. Welcome, Jack, to the Liberty Hour of Inform Live Radio. Hey, 
Hey, thank you so much. It's funny you mentioned the you... frontal lobes. Uh, I just finished three major in-depth lectures in our neuro health class. Uh, we did, I did ages zero to two years old, two to 10, and then 10 to 18. And uh, honestly, there wasn't a dry eye in the house when I went over the, the exquisite uh, programming for the unfolding of the brain from the single, you know, in the, in the embryo. Um, with the neural crest and the folding and everything else and methylation patterns and especially the guide cells bringing nerves along pathways and our microglia cells helping them along the way. So yeah, one of the things that I want to say about what you guys were just chatting about and, and hi Bob and, and uh, hi Bernadette is that uh, if you <laughs> know how your brain functions, then you're much less likely to hand the keys over to somebody else. If you study the processes and you know, I mean, I, I'm, I always say this course is going to be the best course of my life. When I set off to teach a course, these last three lectures, I am absolutely so proud of them <laughs> because you understand coming through just these three lectures and it's the beginning of an 18 lecture course. You understand where fear comes from and how, you know, the outside of the brain interprets the limbic system symbol s signals and you know the you've got the input from the eyes and ears nose mouth skin and all the senses right into the limbic system first and the you know and then your brain puts it into context and colors it with emotion you know the neocortex that is the most recently evolved brain so um you know you can see someone trying to manipulate you if you understand the functioning of the brain and say ah you're going after my amygdala Leave my amygdala alone. <laughs> you. That's a no-go zone for you. It, you know, I was, I was in a huge, uh, huge meeting uh, with people in our in our movement. There was about sixty people in the room. We were all sitting around a big circle in a workshop, and it was uh, just kind of an offhand comment because we were talking. Everyone was quiet and everything else. And then I brought somebody brought up the question: Who's we? Who are we? Like, what group are we? Like, what's our identity? And then I looked around the room and people started talking to their neighbor more, which is perfectly ex what you expect when you activate the amygdala. You activate the in-group, out-group by, by addressing that question. Same thing happens with birds. Same thing happens with monkeys. I mean, these are really ancient pathways that uh, the CIA in particular knows how to hijack. Oh, good heavens. Wow. So. Listeners, if you're new to Jack, as we call him, Dr. James Lyons Weiler, you're getting just a taste of what he's all about and what he knows and then and what his IPAC-EDU teaches, not just with him teaching, but some amazing top uh, professionals in their field. Let's back up a little bit, Jack, though, and could you give us an overview of who you are as a research scientist in this journey that you've been on? I don't, I don't know of anybody who doesn't know me. I go to these meetings and they, everybody knows me. So I don't want to waste time talking about me. By now, no more of that stuff. Introduce yourself. We have IPAC. We have IPAC EDU, Science <laughs> Health Policy and the Law. I've been around the block a little bit. You know, I've been at this for 10 years now, 2014 uh, to 2020. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to dispense with the preliminaries. But, thank you. Thank you. So, so here's what I well, want to talk about. I, wait, 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 Jack. I like to think that every time we air this show, there's a new listener, right? 
You it's not just, we're not you. just preachers. I thought I was violence. your guest. Are we going to, what Putin said to, to Tucker Carlson, are we going to have an in-depth discussion or are we going to have a show? I mean, come on, let's get down to the yeah, dirt here. We are, we are. Okay, but yeah, anyway, he, okay, if you're not going to explain to people a little bit, your backs. Who's on it? She's got the best guest, she's got the best information. Come on. Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. That you you start with. Uh, I've got links to three major areas of your work. So which one would you like to start with? Well, you started with uh, education. So you know this neuro health course is going on right now. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Dale Brown, and he is uh, paired up with me as well as Sarah Woods Kender, who is an herbologist. Dr. Dale Brown just finished an entire uh, formal course to become accredited in neuro functional neurobiology and neuro health neuroscience. Um, this is a course that we've been waiting to bring on for some time, and we're just having the time of our life understanding neuro health. Um, you know, I had 107 students come through my immunology course, and one of the doctors taking my immunology course said that she learned more in the first lecture in immunology than she did in all of her years of undergraduate and medical school. And she was pre-med, so th th we're not teaching our doctors. So these are really, you know, if you don't know the bi basic biology to get into immunology, don't worry. We'll give you the lectures in our introductory courses on biology for free. It's not a commercial. This is a passion. This is absolutely what we need to do. We need to help you empower yourself through knowledge. So when the talking heads on TV or the radio are manipulating what you know and think that they know more, or your doctor thinks that they know more about what's going on with your health, uh, with public health and so on than you do, you can ask really informed questions. And you can't get informed, you can't get true informed consent unless you can ask the right questions. Yeah, so, you know, what I like to describe, how I like to describe IPAC-EDU is it's education, um, you know, for the people. You're, you're not necessarily, it's not like going to a university where you're going to get some fancy degree that, oh, I graduated from Harvard. No, you're actually there to seek information, to learn, to be empowered in your everyday life. So you can't be uh, made fearful or manipulated. And and you apply that to everyday life and it's affordable. That's what I think is so amazing. It's all online and it's flexible to when you can attend. So, right. So like the lectures are live, but they're also recorded. So if it doesn't fit with your schedule, you can go back and watch the recorded um, class That's that you may have missed. Great hybrid right? model of the participants love it. Yeah. If you can hit the registration uh, link there and scroll down, you'll see some of the current offerings. Um, if you yeah, hit on that and then okay. hit new, if you scroll down, you see new, the green, keep going, keep going, down. Oh, hold on, down. I'm having trouble with my mouse. Down. There right we go, there. new. See that, see that green new, new. at that. Look who we have. Yeah, oh, oh, oh. we've got a bit of a lag going on. We, we have Pierre Corey who's going to give a lecture on pandas and pans as part of my autoimmune course. We're going actually offering that entire lecture. And Brad Miller, just to, we just announced that Brad Miller is going to uh, be reviewing Bobby's three books, uh, Thimerosal Let the Science Speak, The Real Anthony Fauci, and The Wuhan Cover Up mm -hmm. in, uh, I think it's 14 lectures. Mm -hmm. So in the fall, I'll be teaching logic reason and knowledge so you guys will be empowered to go and win some arguments and debates and you can call people out and say listen i would like to tell you whether i agree or disagree but i don't know what you're saying because you haven't even structured a, an argument yet i'm still waiting for you to structure an argument 
Um, all, of your, <laughs> all of your formal uh, training is something that stays with you for the rest of your life, and it can really empower you in other aspects of your life, too. Can you scroll down, please? Mm -hmm. I still do the dishes. Yes. Gracie doesn't let me get get away with it, uh, just because I can argue well. Um, yeah, there's the neuro hall, <laughs> and then we have this fantastic course, genes and vaccines. Dr. Kendra Becker's doing it. She started, you know, she's done a Mao A comp uh, lecture on COMT. She's done MTHFR, and so you know, really understanding the parts of biochemistry and genetics and, and cellular detoxification and everything that's involved with uh, the risk of vaccine injury, in spite of the fact that allopathic medicine pretends like these things don't matter. They really, really do matter. Functional medical doctors know. Um, mm -hmm. you know Tori, McDon uh, sorry, Tori Alexander, Victoria Alexander, uh, who's, who calls herself an Ipacian, she was the first one to say, I am an avowed Ipacian. Uh, taught in perils <laughs> of coding humans. That was 18 lectures, and now she's transformed that into a webinar about you know the integration of tech with the with with hum with humanity. Um, and is, so these are really fun courses, but also in depth courses. Uh, so you know what's going on at a level that you're just not going to get out of uh, you know reading an article or even podcasts. Don't go this deep. Mm -hmm. And you know. I don't like to use fear at all to market. I, it's a, it's like an ethical thing with me because the other side does it all the time. I don't feel like we're offering this out of fear. We're offering this because it's wise to do so, to be prepared for the next time they bring out some baloney, like disease mm -hmm. or something like that. And plus, it's mm -hmm. because the courses are live, it's a great community. People get to know each other and they talk about, you know, what courses are you taking next semester? So, you know... Mm -hmm. These courses that are open right now, they'll close on the 15th. And okay. uh, if you use the code ICWA, then I think we brokered a deal where a percentage comes back to ICWOA for a, uh, as, as a donation for my as a, as a donation? Yeah. Wow, that's very generous of you. Thank you so much. The code word sure. ICWA, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to start promoting that. that. We were talking about that, but it's time to promote it, sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it does. So that's pretty exciting. And here's some other classes. Hot topics in epidemiology, journal yeah, that, club. That's a course by Kathy Stein. And what she's doing is she has a hit list of, of uh, studies. We've Look at what we've taught in analytics. It started with uh, how to read and interpret a scientific study. Then we went to spreadsheets. Then we went to how to think like an epidemiologist. Then we went to the math of vaccine science. These are all courses you can take now. Math of vaccine science. And now she's doing a webinar setting where the every, all the participants are are, are reading this a study and then they're performing an autopsy on the studies and finding out what went wrong with them. And so, like recently, Bernadette, uh, you know, one of our close friends just emailed me a study and said, "Dr. Jack, there really must be something wrong with this. Can you tell me what it is?" And uh, so this is actually part part of formal education now here uh, at IPAC EDU to learn how to critically evaluate uh, published peer-reviewed studies. Oh, so absolutely essential. You know, when we've known and it's been admitted by top editors of top journals that the science is bought and that you can't trust so much of it. And so to be able to be discerning 
um, about that. It's, it's part of the beginning of the end of the current corrupt system is for people to really understand what they're doing because, you know, all of this ends when we do our homework and we, then we stand in our truth and all of us together say, no, <laughs> no, not doing it. Um, and, you know, we take over and, you know, it starts with education. So it's so exciting to see um, IPAC. And then, you know, if we find of other places where education is happening, a lot of it's happening in podcasts and Substack and that sort of thing. I'm not aware of anybody else doing what IPAC is doing. This seems like it's unique. Um, I think people are going to find that these courses fit just like a glove. Um, we have different curriculum tracks you can focus on, but I have people that are saying they want to take every every single course that, that we offer, and they're doing it. We've had people that have taken like 17 courses with us already. It's amazing. That's oh, that amazing. is so cool. I, yeah. I would love, I've been saying for you, I, I, since you started, it's like if only I could fit them all in someday. I need to like... people take classes with us, Bernadette, so we're having some impact. On, you know, We're putting a lot of in, a lot of information out there. We also have a monthly webinar uh, a couple of monthly webinars, but one is this, this the director science webinars run by Don Don Najita, and uh, we host people mm -hmm. that are you know talking about the things that nobody else wants to talk about in other places in depth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mm -hmm. people love it. Are you um, in a place yet where um, if somebody in the medical profession wants to get continuing education credits, can you offer those? You know, we keep going back and forth on this, and I have a course that we were going to go up for CMEs. It was Dr. Uh, Donna Parthi's uh, course, and I—he's uh, right here. This is his. This is his business card. This is Doctor. Um, he's showing Donna us a picture Parthi. of a very right. handsome bow tie man. I know he's great. <laughs> he runs DNA, which is online education too. But here's the deal: Krishna has this wonderful phospholipid uh, series of, of, of lessons online. He's given us a wonderful lecture too. And uh, eating the right phospholipids is very, very important. And the, the more you were mentioning things like getting rid of lead and getting rid of fluoride earlier when we were pre-gaming. But if everybody stopped eating seed oils and if everybody started eating healthy phospholipids, oh my gosh, that would help in every aspect of health across the board. And so, so yeah, that's important. Phospholipid is fat. <laughs> okay, so fats, sure, but it's uh, the, okay. Let's do it. So your your cells are made up of a bilipid membrane, of which you have a phosphorus, and then you have two little legs. Those two little legs are actually supposed to be straight. In the uh, phospholipids, you're not supposed to eat the fats. You're not supposed to eat uh, like seed oils. Uh, they're basically rancid and they're crooked and that makes for a chaos in the cell membrane. Well, he's actually come up with a great way to get healthy phospholipids and the more you eat of these, the more you displace the bad phospholipids. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But so in terms of CMEs, uh, the organization oh, that we were going to use has actually been sanctioned for doing something good and, and educating people through, uh, through another venue. And so they're kind of on hold. But, you know, in a really deep philosophical way, it's beside the point. We have doctors that are coming and taking our classes now because they literally just want to learn the stuff they were never taught. And that's what it's all about. Good. They can get their CMEs by reading a journal article and answering the questions the way that they want them to answer them. You know, that's fine. 
So mm -hmm. it's it's a feather in the cap, but it's not what we're all knowledge about. for this. No knowledge for the sake of knowledge, you know. And you know, I'm kind of a big believer in. Oh, go ahead, Bob. So I was going to ask, Doctor, uh, are some of the classes geared less for medical professionals, where I'd be, I'd be able to? A lot of the stuff sounds like it would go right over my head as what I am a activist, retired engineer. It would go over the head of most first year biology students as well. And that's why we start with bio one and bio two. And then we have, you know, environmental toxicology. We have the biology of nutrition. We have, you know, we, we build up. So there are more advanced courses that come later. You can start at any level where you feel like you're comfortable. But, you know, only, <coughs> excuse me, say half of our courses are health focused. All right. And so maybe like uh, reading about journals, understanding how to read journals and the, this, you, know, you talk about spreadsheets or the statistics involved. That stuff really is exciting to me to be able to look at their p-values and say, ah, that's not a very strong study. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going further than that. So it's one thing to be kind of an iconoclast and then teach people how to tear apart studies. The second half of our discussion here, I'm going to tell you how we're creating the path towards the new future of science, where we'll actually be teaching people how to do better statistical analyses, better study design, so that they can be an asset to the people that are going to be doing the, the, stud, the studies in the future. Um, but yeah, this is really revolutionary in that aspect. You know, when I left the University of Pittsburgh, I was really well known all, all throughout in biomedical research. Uh, I had founded the journal Cancer Informatics. I had designed and analyzed the data from over 100 studies. Um, my fellow, I want to say comrades, but that might not come across good in these days. But my fellow, like, <laughs> In bioinformatics, used to say I had the best job in the field as the bioinformatics analysis core director at the Pittsburgh University of Pittsburgh. Um, and yeah, I'm just so terribly, terribly excited about the things that we're building. So we have IPAC, which we you know created 15 years ago, I think. No, it's 20, not 15 years, 2015. So you guys can do the math about nine years ago. Um, as an independent research institute to do research without profit motive. And we've done the studies, uh, Dr. Paul Thomas's vaxxed versus unvaxxed data. Uh, we've done the aluminum studies and show the FDA should have published a pediatric dose limit. They didn't. Here it is. Wow, look what happens when we actually look at how toxic uh, aluminum is. And we're still going. We have other studies on as well. We did pathogenic priming, uh, given the spike protein and other proteins in the virus. Uh, we're going on with pathogenic, pathogenic priming research throughout the pediatric schedule. Look, and hepatitis B, we have the data in-house for all of those analyses are done. We know which parts of the hepatitis B proteins are causing pathogenic priming, which is a really cool exercise in how uh, viruses can cause disease by targeting our immune system. It's part of their MO to actually engage with us in, their, um, in the arms race. The evolutionary arms race and we know this really well now with covid because the SARS-CoV-2 changes so very fast and so uh, we've done the MMR measles mumps rubella we have all the unsafe epitopes we know what should never go in any vaccine and we're going to be publishing these so that's really exciting and right uh, okay and then so this website so we were talking about with the the universe online university is ipac ipak-edu and now you're talking about your research um company the ipacknowledge.org 
um, IPA, the word knowledge.org. And this is where your research kind of is housed, right? Yeah. I mean, we publish technical reports we've and so on, all of, on the publications okay. page. All, all the history of all the research that we've done is there. We have a, a, the IPAC model of autism, which compiles all the literature showing all the ways that vaccines can contribute to autism. So yeah, ipac-edu.org is the URL for attending courses. And then we also have this other non-for-profit arm, which does uh, research in the public interest without profit uh, motive. So as we continue, the, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a research fellow, her name's Marilyn. She's working on the aluminum toxicity across different countries. And we're working to publish that. And of course, the third party processor for our monthly payments just refused to process our, our February payments at all. So we had zero money for the first week of February. So if you want to kick in with a small monthly donation right now, move those donations over here to IPAC, uh, IPAknowledge.org. And you can support the Joshua Kuntz Research Fellowship if you want to support Marilyn and her research. Uh, on cross-country comparisons of uh, aluminum, or you can make a generic donation and help all the others. One of the things I, I was talking with Dr. Paul and others the so, other day, and I realized, Dr. Paul Thomas, we never did a comparison of males and females in his in his data. We never looked at the curves, you know, the the the, the orange and blue curves showing oh. the increase in chronic illness. So we're actually going to embark on a journey of of analyzing the data to see who gets who requires more office visits after vaccination, females or males, boys or girls? So that's going to allow us to republish all of Dr. Paul's data under an absolutely brand new analysis, a new paper. And so the retraction that happened will be moot. And I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent. Oh, that's, that's great. That needs to that's, be promoted. Yeah. I can talk a little bit more about that. So the, the retraction occurred uh, after 250,000 people read this paper. And Dr. Paul's license was actually suspended five days after we published the paper. So months had gone by. We had to, about a quarter million people read the paper. And one person wrote in and said, I know what happened here. These kids that are not vaccinated, they're just not coming for the well-child visits. And that's why the doctors don't have an opportunity to diagnose these chronic illness conditions. So that's why they don't get you know, uh, they don't get called back to the office or they don't, their parents don't make appointments for allergic rhinitis, sinusitis, anemia, you know, things like that. The doctors just don't have the opportunity. And so we fought back. Dr. Paul and I fought back and said, no, that's not right. Look at the data. The journal had a blind eye and, and just uh, continued with the retraction, left, let it, let it stand. They, they retracted anyway. Well, Dr. Russell Blaylock and I then published an analysis that asked two questions. Out of the 4,500 kids that are in that practice, who's actually going to the well-child visits more, the vaccinated or the unvaccinated? And guess what? The unvaccinated kids are going more to the well-child visits than, than the vaccinated. It's opposite, and so the virus goes in our favor. So there was actually a petition by Dr. Javier Figueroa to have our paper reinstated. The journal is just completely silent on this. They've been bought or something. I don't know. But Russell Blaylock actually asked the question, he said, Jack, what, what happens if you look at kids that were vaccinating all this time and then they stop? And guess what? The kids that stop vaccinating have less chronic illness and they have to go to the doctor less than the kids that didn't stop uh, vaccinating. So the kids that do stop vaccinating are healthier than the kids that don't stop vaccinating. So we published that. So there's a paper in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory Research and Practice 
And so, you know, when we're looking at the continuation of that study of the Vaxed Unvaxed study with Dr. Paul Thomas's, and I noticed you have your Vaxed Unvaxed paper uh, there. Let's see, I can't point to your screen, but mine is right here. There's yeah. Ryan Hooker's and there's his and there's hers. So that's a compendium of just the odds ratios. My method, which is relative incidence of odds of, of office visit actually asks a very smart question. If you're exposed to vaccines or not, how often do you have to go to the doctor because you're sick for something? So this is independent of any well-child visits. And just, you know, the vaccinated kids are going much back to the doctors for ear infections and everything else that is not unexpected, right? No ADHD in the 561 unvaccinated kids, zero. You don't need complicated statistics to understand that. So, you know, the publication of this science really has to stand as a vanguard against the disinformation from the government that cooked the data for years. I've written tons of blog articles on it, tons of podcasts, tons of articles saying, and other people have too, Brian Hooker and so on, that their MO is to analyze the data once, take a look at the results, say, oh my gosh, look, it's causing a problem. Throw that result away, not tell the world about it, analyze the data again, look at it and say, oh, wait, I can tweak this and I can tweak that. How can I find a way to make the association go away? And they do this over and over and over again to, so that they can just claim that vaccines are safe and effective, which puts that outside of the realm of science. And it's important, under, important for people who are sick of science and say, I don't want to hear another thing about science because they lied to us. Those people are not scientists, folks. Those people are a fraud. Call them a fraud. Call them a clown. Call them anything but a scientist because I'm a scientist and that I kind of find, find it offensive. I don't fall into the same category as these shills, uh, I hate to use that word, grifters is a good word, right? They're making billions and billions of dollars by misleading the public on vaccine safety, and at the same time, robbing people of their health, robbing people of their lives. Um, so, you know, we're in this to win it. Mm -hmm. We're not just a, you know, small mom and pop shop. We're in it to actually change the world forever. I love it. And, and Jack, that brings us to the, your third major project. So you're doing research, you're educating, and then you're actually, you've got a journal, you're publishing good science. So that's exciting. So let's talk a little bit about um, your science, public health policy and the law journal. Yeah, absolutely. So this journal in about a month's time is going to be completely unrecognizable. This is a horrible website. This is a, all the <laughs> But the website is horrid. And Dr. Peter McAuliffe and I put our heads together along with uh, Ryan Cole, Dr. Ryan Cole, and others and said, we need to expand the editorial board. We need to bring this journal up to par with the industry and what, what's, what it's going to look like. I mean, it's night and day what we're going to see. And I, actually, on Monday morning, uh, we're hosting a walkthrough of the mock-up of the journal with people who've donated to IPAC. So if you want to see a mock-up of the new journal, go to ipnl.org. Cool. And uh, we just want to share with you the good news. We're not giving you anything, but we want to share with you the good news. Peter McAuliffe is coming over as the clinical section uh, editor-in-chief. So Science Public Health Policy publishes <laughs> science, public health, and the law, clinic, clinical research, and ethics. And we're going to be adding, eventually, a whole area on mind science, just everything mind science, because psychology has lost its way. Psychiatry has complete, completely lost their way. So yeah. this Amen. amazing journal has been responsible for, among other things, letting people know the first paper by Jessica Rose in this area, Dr. Jessica Rose, showed that 
the vast majority of the deaths that occur following vaccination happen on day one and day two. And that's statistically improbable. That's not the like, that's not the expected distribution of deaths that happen after COVID-19 vaccine if there's no association. It should be more spread out. We could argue about what it should be, but it shouldn't be most, you know, the majority of them on day one and day two. And so, you know, looking at it that way, then we say, okay, now we've got the subjective peer-reviewed timestamp of a study. And then we also look at things like what is CDC consistent and following the law when it comes to reporting cases and deaths. And no, they're not. Dr. Hanley Ely and his team published that in our journal. Dr. David Brownstein mm-hmm. published his protocol in our journal. After yes. 102 mm-hmm. patients in his practice had COVID and no, not a single one of them died. So at the time we published that paper, not a single person had died that had a diagnosis of COVID yeah. in his practice. And it was all nutraceuticals and oxidative therapies that he did. Yeah, yeah. some and of it. Are very proud of these, and they're all peer-reviewed. And you know what? People say, "Oh, well, that's just Dr. James Lyons-Weiler." I'm sure all of his—they're all friends reviewing each other's papers and things like that. Dr. Brownstein doesn't know who the reviewers were on his paper, and he still to this day doesn't, and never will. Dr. Hanaliili, no idea. That one actually was a fight. There was a fight in that review process. And then Dr. Jessica Rose, no idea uh, who reviewed her paper. I know, but she doesn't. And so as we move on then, this journal is going to expand and grow. And I'm just so excited. I'm beside myself. You are going to cry <laughs> that when you see this journal. You are actually going to cry because it's going to be a major <laughs> information hub. Is it not cool. just the editorials and the peer-reviewed papers and everything else, but news news items. Um, it'll be the community calendar. There, there'll be just so much there, and you know it's going to be sweet, really tightly done and beautiful. Let Let me ask you this, Jack. One of the problems with the other journals is they began to accept advertisements and such from the pharmaceutical industry. So, how will you be funding the expenses of um, of this journal? People can gift to the journal $250 to $10,000 a year. We also will be doing advertising, but I came up with a really smart way to do this. All advertisers are capped at $1,000 a year. Okay. You can't spend more than $1,000 a year with us. And every, paper, every, every page impression is only going to have one paid advertisement. So it's going to be really limited, but we'll have millions of views. So you can see what's going to happen. So we're going to have competition for space among the advertisers and the contract with us if you're an advertiser will specifically say you sign on for a year if you want us to stop running your ads fine but you made a contract to pay us for a year if you want to cut your funding fine it's not going to change our editorial processes it's going to be in the contract in other words we're keeping the the contributions of the um, advertisers so low that we're not dependent on any of them any individual advertiser can walk and we'll be, we've got 12 months to make up the difference. And so, you know, the, we, the, the way the sunlight is the best disinfectant for rot. Okay. So we're shining a big light on all these processes. It's all transparent. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be 100% clear on the website, what we're doing. Um, and if an advertiser ever calls me and says, I can't believe you published that you're going to hurt my bottom line. I'm going to say, well, it was peer reviewed. We stand by the, we stand by the paper. So we'll never weaponize retraction and take, take a paper out to satisfy somebody that's gifting or anything like that. The, the trick is everybody's going to have to support the journal as much as they can so that we're not dependent on any one source. And if you support objective research, that's the way to do it. 
Yeah, it's the funding model of most things is what ends up the most easiest to be corrupted. So I'm glad you're you're putting you're finding ways to protect the journal so that it can't be corruptible moving forward. That's so important. A lot of thought know. into this, Bernadette. You're exactly right. And then the the, the surprise thing I didn't tell you about. You know, I think you know about it, but I didn't tell you I wanted to talk about it is. Um, we're created, we've created an IRB. The Institute, Institutional Review Board is an entity that people that want to do objective human subject research can apply and either be supervised by the IRB to make sure they're doing it ethically, or if it's a retrospective study, which means you already have the data and you're just going back and analyzing it, uh, you can get a waiver. Well, I put out 50 emails and I said, would you like to be part of this IRB to 50 people that I know, love and trust and whose objectivity and ethics are, are beyond reproach? It wasn't just me. We had nine months of secret meetings of an IRB formation committee. And after those nine months, we had 50 people and they said, every last one of them said yes. 30 mm-hmm. people are now trained. We have 36 people so we can stand up five person study sections and we can anal- we can review anybody's uh proposal now why is this important to our community states like california and texas are refusing data releases of public data such as uh, record level vaccination uh to to researchers who are asking for the data because you don't have an irb so this registration with the hhs is not done yet we're just starting the process of registration but when that's done it should only take us a month or so uh we'll have a fully functioning irb so that we can get this increase the per unit rate of publication uh, of objective science per unit time. That's what I want to say. We're we're increasing the rate of publication of objective science per unit time, and that's our goal. And so we're nimble, we're mean, we're lean, and uh, yeah, we're (laughs) So I don't know what more I can do. We've got an independent research institution, we've got a journal, we've got a university and an IRB, you know, I really don't know what more. I think you got it. No, I, I think you've got it covered and you'll inspire others because I'd love to see others follow this model. And then, you know, the more all of this grows, the more we can reclaim this great nation um, and reclaim our health and, and the whole stinking medical industry. Explain to me a little bit more about, um, so when you, when you're, is the journal associated with the IRB or are they separate? How do, how does all that work? And then, so like if the IRB that you're creating, the uh, the review board does say um, the state of California with their data, do they have to acknowledge and respect that you've got an official review board and or they can they say oh we don't like your review board i mean how does that work there's only one set of rules for creating and running an irb in the united states of america so any irb can approve a data request from california we just happen to be the ones that won't stab you in the back and refuse it after a phone call from a public health official That's the only difference. Okay. So they can try to deny it. And if they try to deny it and we've done everything by the book, you know, our standards for the research, if you can imagine our standards for the research that we're going to hold, uh, the, standard, the standards that we hold for the research are going to meet or exceed HHS's standards for human subject research. And so what? Fantastic. That, that's how we're judged. We're not judged on the basis of my last name or my publication record. And so to your question of how are the journal and the IRB associated, we actually 
have separate groups of people running the two organizations. So the journal is uh, okay. uh, publishing publishing academics so that are on the editorial board. Every single section of that journal will have its has its own editor in chief, right? So these are different people making decisions okay. over here in the journal than are making the decisions about the research that go forward. And the IRB, it's really clever what we've done. The IRB, just we by by this time next year, we'll have fifty people. We can randomly choose according to certain criteria. We want a statistician. We want a layperson. We'd like somebody that's involved in you know um, freedom of faith, uh, you know expression of faith, and we need a scientist or, or and a medical doctor. We need five people. Well, we have fifty to choose from. So somebody submits us a, uh, a proposal. We put it out there, and then the first five people that say yes, if they fit the criteria, then we have those people. And if nobody says yes, then we, you know, we have an algorithm that randomly chooses someone to contact first. So we try to make this cool. as objective as possible, and we're going to be able to hold up a meeting. The, the IRB's uh, uh, study section will be selected and up and running within a week of getting a proposal, and then they'll have their first meeting within a week after that. So the study chair, the, the IRB session chairperson runs those um, sessions. And then if they have any problems, they ditch the problems upstream to the executive committee, which is the people that were the formation committee, who are all also HHS trained. So we have an appeals process. And so it's actually very well oiled. And everything that we built is just going to be you know, so streamlined and efficient, um, you know, to the extent that I'm involved and at the nexus of the journal and the research institute and the IRB, people could say mm -hmm. I have a conflict of interest. But if anybody knows what I've given to actually make this happen, they really would, they probably should not worry about a conflict of interest. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see objective science go forward. And so I'll defend object, objective science, and this is the best way to do it. We're not building the alternative. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll get it when you see the journal. When you see the new journal, you'll say, oh my gosh, he, mm -hmm. he's competing with science. He's competing with nature. He's competing with anything that's publishing. It's going to be great. Nice. Um, question about review boards, because, you know, years ago when we first met and you, you know, you would send me studies, say, Bernadette, what do you think? And you just wanted my mama bear critical thinking eyes on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would often like come back to you and say, I don't understand how this study design could even give you valid information. It doesn't make sense to me, you know, because they're not considering this or that. Right. Yeah. Um, so is the purpose i've never really thought about what an investigational review board does is that what the i is for investigational institutional review board what i stands for institutional institutional review board. review board so do they look at i know they look at the ethics of it and i i'm i'm believing that you are probably one of those rare um IRB boards that will um, not approve studies that don't give informed consent, no matter, everybody gets informed consent, even if the um, the study, uh, the person running the study deems it to be of low risk. I mean, that new whole thing that everybody's talking there's, about. There, there, there are two types of studies. The there's century. retrospective studies and there's prospective studies. If the data already exist and there's no new intervention mm -hmm. whatsoever, 
like in Dr. Brownstein's study, it was mm-hmm. a case study, right? Case series, 102 patients mm-hmm. had already received treatment. They already had their outcomes. There was no new intervention and there was no way mm-hmm. that the study was going to actually affect their personal care and outcome. Then, yeah, they right. can get a waiver and informed consent is, is beside the point. But what you're really talking about is right. the FDA rule that says, yes, if we have a prospective study and we have this new, say, blood pressure medication, and we're going to have people that are taking blood pressure medication change their medication, but we think that the risk is smaller, is, 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 is minimal, so go ahead and change it, but don't tell the patients. No, we'll never approve that. That's unethical. I don't care what the FDA says. I don't care what any regulatory body says about what I have to do as an IRB, or, um, not me, but the IRB. Uh, and if our study section mm-hmm. starts saying, well, it's kind of it's prospective, but Pierre Corey says that the risk is minimal. No, we're going to hold them to the standard of truly ethical informed consent. And this is the difference between doing what's right and doing what's legal. You know, yes. we have to hold this, the, these people doing the studies to the right standard, not the legal standard. And that's why I said it's going to meet or exceed HHS, HHS's standards. So, you know, if... if Excellent. You know... If, any of the if any of this um, study section members don't understand science well enough, we have courses they can take, and we're actually going to be offering. Uh, if a study comes to us and it's a really really badly designed study, we have courses and workshops that we're going to offer to the people submitting the proposals to the IRB so that they can learn new ways of thinking about doing study design. So it's, it's transformative in the sense that it's synthetic, it's building something. It's not a stopgap, it's actually facilitating new research. And we're opening up the conduits for objective research, period. When the, the journal mm-hmm. is about science, it's not about vaccines, the journal is about science. Anything to do with science, science, public health policy and the law, Peter McAuliffe loves it, I love it, it's about everything. Very cool. You know, there's, there's two things going on right now um, and with both of them, I almost wonder if there are studies going on where they were they deemed the risk minimal, and so they're not giving informed consent. One is I recently learned that in some sexual assault kits, um, the it's standard now to give the HPV vaccine to victims of sexual assault. I can't answer that question. I, just, I mean, I'm hearing about this. I can't. I can't. I need some time to research why they would even do that. Um, it's kind of like well, the, I know it's absurd. It's kind of like the standing order for the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine. If you're unconscious and they catch you unconscious in a hospital, they're going to vaccinate you. They're going to assume that you're not vaccinated. That's a violation of yeah, informed consent. It's crazy, but treatment. but we're talking about is violation of informed consent for 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 research. So I don't think the you know yeah. attack, the attack kits are about research. That's a that's about medical care. Okay. Well, I thought maybe they'd be at some point collecting data. So maybe I was wrong with that one. But how about this one, Jack? How about the fact that Pfizer has a new formula of their um, mRNA COVID shot that is freeze dried and does not need to be deep frozen? They have given it the same, you know, code billing code as their other. The only way you're really going to be able to track the difference is in lot numbers, which I imagine they may be doing. Individuals aren't, I don't believe, going to be told 
that this is a different formulation. I almost wonder, and because the fact that they did not make a huge deal about it, we were told ad nauseum, oh, these vaccines are coming out or they're miraculous mRNA, but you got to keep them minus 90 degrees. You got to keep them cold, cold chain, cold chain. Everybody was spending all this money on freezers and cold storage. Can you imagine how much money they spent keeping these stinking things cold? And this is the future where they want to go. They want everything mRNA. So if they really had a safe version of this that they knew was already fully tested, wouldn't they be like, wouldn't it be headline news, New York Times, Forbes magazine, everybody would be saying, oh, it's exciting, the new mRNA technology, it doesn't need to be deep frozen anymore, just a regular refrigerator freezer will work. But no, they just quietly slip this new formulation to the general public to probably track lot numbers and see, huh, what are we going to see? That's my thought. Um. I actually did a deep dive on this issue, and I believe that the reason why they changed that was because it realized that if they just do regular frozen, that they're actually breaking the mRNA into small pieces with freeze-thaw cycles. So with with um, deep freeze, you're much less likely to get a full thaw over the same, you know, per unit time. Um, I'm not advocating one way or the other for that. But, you know, you're exactly right mm -hmm. when you change something like a, a formula in a vaccine or worse, you know, the fact is everybody who's ever been vaccinated is part of a long-term healthy, health, you know, vac vaccine safety, uh, safe, safety trial, long-term safety trial, but they mm -hmm. were never presented. And I believe that this came in with the 21st Century's Cures Act, the clause, which I alerted everybody to when that happened yes. and said, hey, wait a minute, they're slipping this in at the last minute yeah. the night before so that um, they could then say we're, we're covered now when we do retrospective studies, which are actually prospective studies because we're not going to vaccinate 100 million people with childhood vaccines. We know we're doing it and we know we're going to analyze the data later that makes it prospective. I made a lot of noise on this on social mm. media and then they slip it in, in the middle of the night. Uh, and then the FDA just recently said, yeah, you know what? You're right. We're going to use this as a uh, we're going to use this. My, my fear is that it's a slippery slope where we're going to actually mm -hmm. see psychotropic meds being changed on kids. Their parents are not going to know it's been changed. There's going to be an adverse reaction. And there's no way, this is the problem, there's no way for the patients or the parents to know, uh, to even begin to attribute the causality to the change in the drug because they don't know that there was a change in the drug. And of course, the medical uh, yeah. the medicos are not going to fess up and say, oh, I know what happened to your kid. We changed their drug. Yeah. Okay. So we have yeah. to reverse this. This is a policy that actually has to be stomped out until it's dead. We have to stop this uh, enrolling people in studies without their consent. They know what they're doing. That's why they're, mm -hmm. they think they're covering their tracks. But I'll tell you what, they forgot to do for, as you well know, Bernadette, they forgot to put in the words for informed permission. And there's a big difference on the code of regulations. Mm -hmm for informed consent for adults to consent for research and informed permission for parents. So if they think that they protected themselves, mm -hmm. that you're watching over there in HHS and FDA and CDC, you got to go back to the lawmakers and say, you know what, we have to add informed permissions. We forgot that. Now watch within the next, you know, four or six <laughs> months, it's going to be a change to that. 
is going to say informed permission. Every all the parents that are advocating for informed consent really need to advocate. I think Bernadette lost her power. Bernadette, uh, they need oh, to for informed permission uh, to retain the rights to for the parents to refuse informed permission. And so that that's that's a change in our um, our strategy. I like that language. That that makes a lot of sense to make it more clear as to what we're doing. We got two stages of informed consent, really. One is that permissive level for the children. Yeah, that's what happens when you actually read the Code of Fire Regulations. So Bernadette and I did that over the summer. We read. Okay. I yeah. need to look that site up. Yeah. At, at ipac-edu.org this summer, we're going to run it again, where you can sign up for the um, informed consent human rights and uh, informed consent medical rights and human rights course with Bernadette and I. Okay. So yeah, we're going to go out without Bernad Bernadette. So you're in the driver's seat now. All right. All right. Well, then I get to double back. We have a standing order bill in our state right now. The Secretary of Health wants to have standing orders that they enjoyed during the pandemic. Now, they're, they're, the bill's going through the Senate, going to the House next, just passed the Senate today. Could you tell me about what you know about the standing order process in Pennsylvania? Does it exist already as like a thing for the flu and COVID shots? It's a federal standing order. Federal standing order. It's a federal standing uh, order to assume that anybody that's, not, it's, that's unconscious is not vaccinated for flu, and then they extended it to COVID during COVID. So I thought that expired with the state of emergency. No, this was this existed before the state of emergency. Oh this, my! This God. federal this this federal rule came out was it was expanded to COVID under the state of emergency, but it existed with influenza before. Oh great! Okay, I got to look into that further. This is getting scarier. Uh, we need more testimony for our house. You know, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you so much, Doctor Jack, for joining us. And uh, you have so much going on. We'll make sure we get the right classes signed up, meaning not give money to the wrong uh, uh, payment site. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. And best to Bernadette. Thank you both. Yep. We'll talk soon. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. The information contained in this episode is for informational purposes only.
No material is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.